calendar. That's where we'll be. Uh, but we will still continue to walk through 1 John. There'll be some different things in the service, but Advent begins next Sunday, first Sunday of Advent. Let me pray, and then we'll jump right in. Father in heaven, I uh, thank you uh, that you are uh, that you are God. You are God over all things. Every move we make, every every uh, thing that we do, every uh, um, uh, situation that we encounter uh, is ordained by you, and uh, you have you have made it uh, as such. And so, God, I pray that right now that we would be uh, keen to that understanding that that we are here in this place because you have ordered it in that way. So I pray that our ears would be attentive to what you have to say to us from your holy word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it wasn't long after I became a Christian in 1997 that I ran into what was known as the culture wars that was happening within the church at the time in, in the 90s, late, early 90s into the late 90s. And if you're unfamiliar with what the culture wars are, it can be summed up by saying uh, that the church or Christians sought to, to divide that which they considered sacred uh, and that which they considered the secular. And so, so those things that were sacred uh, or, or were secular were not christened by the church and were considered bad or evil. And if you participated in such things, you were considered bad or evil. Or as they said in my day, you were backslidden. So on the other hand, in the sacred world, uh, you had Christian music, you had uh, Christian clothes and books and Christian artwork, um, and even Christian sports leagues and political ideologies that were created uh, to kind of uh, consume some of that which was, was already owned by secular culture and to make it sacred. So, so this movement was an attempt to separate the evils of the world. So creating a Christian bubble that one could live in for the rest of their life by following simple rules. So maybe you've heard some of these rules like don't drink alcohol or don't smoke, or don't, uh, don't cuss, don't use bad language, or, uh, and this one's still around, don't read or watch Harry Potter. And other vices, I'm sure you could add to that list. So when we read verses like this, we come to verses like this in 1 John, or anywhere in the scriptures, these types of things immediately start to pop into our head. But John, just so you know, is not talking about creating this unhealthy and unhelpful division between the sacred and the secular things of this world. And honestly, I believe this whole idea of creating that separation has caused more harm than good to the church because it has inadvertently created a guilty, shame-ridden, ill-equipped generation of Christians that don't know how to biblically engage and discern the things of the world. And it's because we live in this world created by God, we have to be a people who are rightly discerning all aspects of life and then seeking to bring them under the lordship of Christ in everything. And this is what John helps us with in these three verses today. And so the first question that we need to ask, or there's actually two questions, the first questions we need to ask before we jump in is, what does it mean not to love the world 
and why is that wrong? What does it mean to not love the world, and why is that wrong? Because uh, John talks about this in John 3.16, very famous verse, John 3.16, that God does love the world, so much so that he sent his only son to die for the world. And then you have the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that, that, that says, God has richly provided us with everything to enjoy. And I think John clears up this dichotomy in these three verses this morning. And he does this by providing his readers with with one command that has two do-nots within it. And we're going to use those do-nots as our framework to understand our text this morning. So the first do-not is, do not love the world. And the second do-not is, do not love the things of this world. So do not love the world and do not love the things of this world. So first, do not love the world. So two choices stand before every one of us here. You either love God or you love the world. You either love God or you love the world. So like we saw last week, John doesn't give any room for for the in-between within the church. So in verse 4, that Hunter uh, exposited for us last week, says, whoever says, I know him, whoever says, I know God, but does not keep God's commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And the scriptures actually tell us that this is actually a disgusting option to God, this this kind of in-between state that some of us like to live in. Speaking to the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus explicitly says to this church, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. And then Jesus' words in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 are also blunt concerning this topic. He says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, I know you are used to hearing the word money there. You cannot serve God and money, which is true, but the actual word that is used in the Greek there is the word mammon because Jesus is referring to all that the physical world would offer you for hope, not just money, but anything in this physical world that would be offered to you for hope. So I'm sure you can name off plenty of things that would fall into this category. And it's here that John wants to warn his readers about the temptations of life that lie at hand for each one of us. So last week, uh, we looked at John's pastoral encouragement to his people. And this week, uh, they become warnings, pastoral warnings to his people that, that say, don't fall away into this spiritual duplicity that Jesus warns us about. So this is a very real wrestling match that we all find ourselves in as Christians. Our our new self that has been redeemed by Christ is wrestling with 
our old self that is dying a slow yet loud death. Paul tells us in Romans 12, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, but according to God's will for your life. Now, this doesn't take place in a vacuum or some alternate uh, Christian universe that we try to create as the church. As you all know, the Christian life takes place in real time amidst corruption, sin, brokenness, injustice, stress, anxiety, shame, temptation. It takes place in real struggle that we all face each day. So John's warning here is is not a plea to withdraw from the world in respect to the world being uh, used to talk about the people of the world, like simply the universe or life on earth as he does in his gospel and other places in 1 John. What John is referring to here when he speaks about the world is the life of human society organized under the power of evil. That's what John is referring to here. The life of human society organized under the power of evil. This is how Paul describes it in a couple of his letters. 2 Corinthians 4.4, he says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then Paul explains it further in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, when he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now what could get really confusing is the fact that John uses the same word when he is talking about the people of the world, in John 3.16, and the world that is under the rule and control of the prince of this era, the devil, who Paul refers to. So this is why knowing the context of your Bible, of, of Bible verses, is very important, because we like to lift verses out of context and say, this is what this means, and then we forget about everything else that is around us. So to isolate a verse like John 3.16, which is often done, uh, or, or even the verses we are in today, could leave one feeling confused and maybe a little doubtful concerning the reliability of the scriptures. So you might be asking, well, which is it, John? Do, do, do we love the world or do we not love the world? Because you're saying, you're saying both things. Are you speaking out of both sides of your mouth? So looking at John 3.16 and 17, we see that God does love the world so much so that he gave the ultimate sacrifice uh, in his son to redeem those who believe, which says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then verse 17, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And then taking those verses and then comparing them to our passage today, it it may seem like John is 
contradicting this earlier statement that he's making in his gospel. And so this is why we continue to push into the context that we find here. Because in 1 John, we have these false teachers who are threatening the church with beliefs and teachings that are contrary to the gospel because they live in line with the world's system that is organized under the power of evil. They have a specific task. They have um, specific strategies. They have, they have specific goals in which they want to accomplish, and they are all evil. So they walk in darkness. They are liars, and the truth is not in them. Because their desires are the desires of the world. So something helpful for me when I was studying these, these verses was to look back at, at, at uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer for his people in John chapter 17. So turn there with me, just so you can get eyes on it. John chapter 17, and we'll just look at verses 14 through 17 there. Remember, I said a couple of weeks ago that, that 1 John, some scholars believe that 1 John is kind of a commentary on the gospel of John. So this is why we kind of bounce back and forth. I think that's really helpful. But Jesus says, or prays in John 17, 14 through 17, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So even Jesus is using the word world in both of its contextual understandings here. So you have in verse 14 here in, in, in John 17, the world hates Christians because they are not of the world, which Jesus is thinking about and saying the evil system that is under the control of the evil one, the devil. And then in verse 15, uh, and I love that, that Jesus' solution is, is not for us to be pulled out of the world. That's not the solution. Just to, let's just go ahead and pull them out of the world and just take them on up to heaven. That would be a whole lot easier if we just did that. Jesus doesn't pray that. His solution is not to remove them from the world, but to keep them from the evil one. And he makes a distinction between the world versus the evil one who rules the evil system of the world. Well, why? Well, in verse 16, it's because those who are with Jesus, who are following Jesus, are not of the world. They haven't placed themselves under the rule and power of the evil one and its system. So turn back to 1 John. So the world in our passage is an inclusive term for those who are in the kingdom of darkness and have not yet been born of God. So John wants his readers to understand this clearly because those who are entering the churches with a false gospel might sound attractive and even compelling, but it is not the way of Jesus, but the way of the devil. It is progressive Christianity before it had a name. It is liberal theology before we started using the word liberal when we were considering different theologies. Which means it's it's still, still with us today. And it's also a temptation for us 
just as it was for the church that John is writing to here. And this, I just recently read uh, Steve, uh, Stephen McAlpin's book. It's called Being the Bad Guys, How to Live for Jesus in a World That Says You Shouldn't. And so very, it's 2022 book, so very recently written, and he's reflecting on the culture in which we currently live, and he writes these words. We are being offered a rival gospel, a narrative that seeks first to expose the Christian gospel, the biblical gospel, as bad news, and then to replace it with much-needed good news which in reality is no gospel at all. So bringing in our verses again from last week, we see the church and the world portrayed in sharp contrast to each other. They they are two entirely separate and entirely distinct groups of people. One group is under the dominion of Satan. The other is under the dominion of God. And these who are under the dominion of God are truly growing in their knowledge of God and they are living under his rule and reign. They are seeking that out. That is where they want to be. So where are you in that? Just evaluating your life a little bit. You're here, so let's just just have fun with this and just do it. Um, You're not going to do this at home probably, but just now, just evaluating your life, where do you stand Do you live under the dominion of Satan or do you live under the dominion of God? And you can't do both at the same time. So do not love the world. The next distinguishing feature of of those living under God's rule and reign is that we are not to love the things of this world either. Look at verse 16. John says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So in verse 16, John brings up what else we are not to love in this life, and that is the things of this world, the vices of a worldly way of life, literally the basic stuff of everyday life. So I don't know if any of you were, some of you probably weren't even born in the 90s, but, um, but nine, there's a 90s Christian folk band called Cayman's Call, and uh, it was like my favorite band when I was newly, a, new, a new Christian, but they recently released their first album, so I've been listening to it again and reminiscing, um, but there's a, ty- there's, a out, there's a song on the album titled This World, and, and the first line of the chorus says this, this world has nothing for me. And this world has everything. All that I could want and nothing that I need. What a window into our hearts, right? We see everything around us in this world. I mean, God has richly provided us with everything to enjoy. Yet all of these things that we can enjoy and take pleasure in can easily turn into what we worship and what we give our lives over to. Francis Schaeffer has a small little book called No Little People. If if you've never read it, I'd uh, recommend you read it. But he rightly describes this idea here as uh, practical materialism. Practical materialism. And he writes this. He says, We all tend to live ash heap lives 
we spend most of our time and money for things that will end up in the city dump. And which, back in the day, at the city dump, you would go and there would be smoke coming from the dumps because they would burn the trash. Now it's like bad for the environment. But that's what he's getting at, is that everything around you will eventually be burned, will eventually not exist anymore. And so John gives these three broad categories of of how practical materialism manifests itself in our lives. So the first thing he talks about is are the desires of the flesh. So these are simply those desires of our fallen sinful nature that draw us away from communion with Christ and draw us away from communion with each other. A very easy way to see if a brother or sister is struggling or wrestling with sin is a lot of times their first step is them to pull away from Christian community. Either over shame because they don't want to confess or or whatever, whatever it may be. That's usually the first step. So Paul describes them in this way in Galatians chapter 5, the the desires of the flesh and what they look like. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So instead of drawing you near to God, these vices, these, these, uh, these desires of the flesh draw you away from God and away from his kingdom. So what, what desires of the flesh do you cultivate? What desires of the flesh have you cultivated even this week? What do you need to, to, to repent of to draw you that would allow you to be drawn back into communion with Christ and communion with his bride? Think about that. So the second desire is the desires of the eyes. So this is every lustful look, every coveting glance is a brick being laid to stack the wall between you and God. Some obvious biblical examples of this go all the way back to Genesis 3. Eve's look upon the forbidden fruit, which eventually led to the fall of all of of mankind. You have David's lustful gaze of Bathsheba uh, upon her roof as she bathed in 2 Samuel 11, which not only led to the the murder of of her husband, but also to death and destruction that plagued David's family and his kingdom until the day that he died. So you may think that that fleeting glance or that innocent thought that you have about something that you want or desire or you want from your neighbor, you, may, you might think that's innocent or it doesn't, it's not that big of a deal. Nobody is seeing me do that. Nobody understands what's, nobody can hear my thoughts. But let me just warn you that those fleeting glances and those uh, fleeting thoughts will grow to consume you. And if you aren't quick to confess those things and repent of those things, they will lead to your destruction. Three, the pride of life. 
So while the previous two vices are outside desires, the, the pride of life deals with unholy pride and passion for what one has, their possessions, the, the pride of their life. And I think this manifests itself in a, in a number of different ways that all have the same goal, whether it's your job or um, your, your bank account or your relationships or your status. It is to form new liturgies in your heart that lead you away from the gospel. That's the goal of all of these, all of these, uh, these prides of life that we might have. You might have more than one, but their goal is to form a new liturgy in your heart that is not being shaped by the gospel. So maybe you are very proud of what you have or how much money you have in the bank or, or, or what kind of, of job you have or which neighborhood you live in or the status that you hold, the friends that you have, the places that you can visit. Listen to Francis Schaeffer again. He says, Let me say with tears that as far as material possessions, time, energy, and talents are concerned, All too many Bible-believing Christians live as though their entire existence is limited to this side of grace. And so we ignore Jesus' statement about these two irreconcilable reference points. You cannot serve God and mammon. Either riches in this life or the reality of God in the future, one of them must give the overshadowing cast to our lives. So what is the pride of your life? Or to ask it like Schaefer, what overshadows your life? What is that shadow that you take comfort in? Is it the reality of God and eternity with Christ? I hope so. Or is it the pride of this life? Is it the riches of this world? Is it those things that you can consume and derive pleasure from? Is that what overshadows your life? Well, in closing, uh, John gives two reasons in this passage why, uh, why these things are wrong. Why, why is it wrong to join forces with the world and to spend so much time and energy into the things of this world? Well, one is found in verse 15. John says, simply, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. They can't both exist. Jesus' words, it is impossible to serve two masters. And Jesus' point there is to say that if you try to serve the Father at the same time as you try to serve, uh, serve the world, eventually you will end up hating one over the other. You will despise them because they demand too much of your life. And usually it's the Father, it's God who loses out on that. You can't serve two masters. The second one is found in verse 17. And John tells us that the world and all of its alluring pleasures are passing away. The grass withers and the flowers fade. Everything is passing away. Even as we speak, it is disintegrating around us. I don't care how new your car is or how new your house is or how new the clothes on your back are. They are right now literally withering away. So those things that made you so happy yesterday when you bought them don't make you quite as happy today, do they? 
But, but what John says does last or abide forever are those who do the very will of God. These are the things that carry on into eternity. Because the gospel never gets old. The gospel never wears out. It doesn't need updates. It never rusts. And most importantly, it does not change with the times. I don't care what anybody says. The gospel does not change. And because of this, young believers and seasoned believers alike are to live in light of the truth and reality of this unchanging gospel. But this also has implications for those who aren't believers as well. Because logically speaking, you know this to be true. This is why you, you run to the next new product and experience uh, and, and new experience to find the rest your heart is so desperately longing for, that, that happiness and that joy that you derive from those things and those experiences. Those are, those are given to you by God. C.S. Lewis talks about that. That all of those little, little things that you experience that are good and make you feel good, those are, those are glimpses into eternity. St. Augustine said, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And that's true. Until you find your rest in Christ, your heart will always be restless. You will never find rest in those things that you desire or those things that you have or those people in your life. They will never satisfy you. So I pray we would all rest in the true reality of the gospel this day and our hope and comfort for life and for death. Amen. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for making the things of this world and the pleasures of this world our God for allowing 